0: Well, good morning, church. As you're taking in your seats, you can take out your Bibles. I said that right. We're going to look at that passage our friend Megan just read, Jonah 1, starting in verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. It's good to be back with you this this week. I uh, missed all of you last, last Sunday, um, but... You all were in great hands, and probably better hands, uh, listening to the sermon that Will preached. We're continuing our study through the book of Jonah. We've been going at it for two weeks so far. Uh, The first week, we introduced um, our study by looking at Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 6. We talked about how we're going to be focusing on two primary themes throughout the book, and that is the mission and the mercy of God. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, we saw that God gave Jonah a call, a call to go to Nineveh, and call out against it. It was a call to go and preach, go proclaim a a message of repentance. God says, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah, instead of obeying God and going to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa, and he goes in the opposite direction to a, a town called Tarshish. That's where the ship was heading. But God, in his grace and his mercy and his wrath, he sends a storm to kind of show Jonah his disobedience, to wake him up. We saw that Jonah went down into the bottom of the sea and fell asleep, and Jonah sends a storm, it gets greater and greater as it goes. Um, Last week Will looked at Jonah chapter one, verses seven through sixteen, looking at true sacrifice. And Will, I want to thank you for your message. Uh, It encouraged me. I know those I talked to encouraged as well, so thank you for faithfully preaching God's word. Um, We saw that the sailors came together and they cast lots, that who on whose account was this storm coming to them? The lot fell on Jonah They they come to Jonah and ask, who are you? Jonah gives this kind of confession about who he is. Uh, Jonah says, pick me up and throw me over the sea. I know it's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. The sailors are hesitant. They don't want Jonah's quote-unquote innocent blood on their hands. Of course, we know that Jonah was not innocent because he was disobeying God. He was running from God. Uh, But the the sailors hurl Jonah overboard, and the sea ceased from its raging. At the end of Will's sermon, he talked about how... uh, There's a cycle, and I don't know if we still have the graphic on on the screen, but there was a graphic of seeing God's uh, character, his his sovereignty, how he disciplined Jonah. He saw the the wrath of God being revealed. Uh, He was saved, and there's a sacrifice, and it leads to showing who God is. And, And Will said that the sacrifice of Jonah for the sailors foreshadows who Jesus is. How Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus gave himself up for sinners as this substitutionary sacrifice. And we'll list it out how Jonah and Jesus, how they stood before Pilate, how they were accused, a man, how he laid that out, how Jesus is the greater Jonah. And he concluded the sermon by saying that just as the sailors worship God by looking and gazing upon the sacrifice, we too. As we look and gaze upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, are to give ourselves as living sacrifices. For that is our act of worship. Worship in response to His sacrifice in, involves presenting all of oneself as a living sacrifice. So that's the two kind of in a nutshell summaries of two messages that we've come through. And where we're starting this morning is picking off where we left off, looking at Jonah chapter one verses seventeen. And primarily today we're going to be focused on the mercy of God. That's what I have titled this sermon. It's not very creative. Um, I was thinking about calling it Jonah's Prayer. Uh, I'm not very good with the titles and names, but we're looking at the mercy of God. And I think this, we'll, we'll see this kind of burst forth from our Bibles, the glory of God's mercy, the beauty of his mercy. And I, and I hope and I pray that as we study this, that we will see the mercy of God in the story of Jonah and that we will cherish it, that we will experience it. If we have not experienced for the first time even, we'll experience it this morning that we will, uh, as we see the mercy of God ultimately shown to us in Christ, that we would be changed, that we would grow, that we would actually become more merciful. We would become more like God as we gaze upon the mercy of God. So that's, that's my hope. That's where I want to go this morning. That sound good to you guys? Everyone awake this morning? Somewhat? We're going to be looking at four primary questions. Number one, what is the mercy of God? Number two, who is the mercy of God given to? Number three how is the mercy of God shown? And number four, what does the mercy of God lead to? And I think we'll see all of these questions answered as we study through the text. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, open to Jonah chapter one, starting in verse 17. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So remember up to this point, Jonah had received a call from God and he had ran the other way. He was disobedient. He was in sin. And God hurls this great wind to cause a storm. It threatens to break the ship up. Jonah even tells the sailors that he's running from God, that he's fleeing from his presence. At this point we know that Jonah was just and rightly, probably should have died. He should have been uh, he should have drowned in the in the ocean, being thrown overboard. But God has mercy on him. He sends this great fish to swallow up Jonah. And God's mercy, I define mercy, as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That's why I define mercy. It's not my definition, I found it on the website, or uh, my dictionary, Webster's dictionary. Mercy, (laughs) compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So I think we can see that God would be just and right to have let Jonah drown in the water. Regardless of if we don't like that, or that makes us uncomfortable, God would have been right to do that. He was disobeying God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. If he sinned against God, he should have been killed. But God has mercy on him. And, and Jonah was stubborn and disobedient. And God still has mercy on him. It says there that the Lord appointed, that means orchestrates or ordains or selects, a great fish. Now this word great fish, uh, some people have, have said it, it means whale. Uh, back in, this, in the ancient times, they didn't have a word for whale. So you could call a whale a great fish and it was A whale. Uh, but the great fish uh, just means it's a Hebrew word for a generally a general word for a large sea creature, an aquatic beast. So some people think it, it could have even been a shark. It was some, some sort of sea creature swallows Jonah and saves Jonah from drowning. And notice that after God saves Jonah, then he records this prayer. I think that's important to note. I think from Jonah's perspective, he might think that because I called out to God, he saved me. But what I think the order of this suggests and what we see throughout the scriptures where it lines up is, yes, God answers the cries of his people, but ultimately God's mercy is given by God. Ultimately, mercy is shown by God, not based on human will or human act. It's ultimately up to God. God is the one who shows mercy. And that's the first point from our passage, a big principle that uh, I, I think we see from the passage this morning. Number one, that the Lord has mercy on whomever he wills. I'm hoping I'm using that word whomever right there. That one always gets me, whoever or whomever. But the point is, God has mercy on who he has mercy on. If that confuses us or doesn't make sense to us, uh, Paul says in Romans 9, for he says to Moses in Romans 9, 15, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It says in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, God is the one ultimately who decides who mercy, who receives mercy and who doesn't. God is the one in, in his sovereign good purposes, he's the one who ultimately decides. So if you're the, here this morning and you're a Christian, you are not a Christian because you decided to. You don't earn forgiveness because you're worthy of it. God has shown mercy upon you, has shown forgiveness to you because he decided to, because he is merciful you're not a Christian this, here this morning if you think that you were worthy or because you had a superior mind or the scripture just made more sense to you than the person next to you. You are here this morning as a Christian because God had mercy on you. The Lord has mercy on whomever he wills. Not based on human right or might, but on God. So God's mercy is God not punishing us for the sins that we deserve. God's mercy and compassion is that's is what he shows his people, not based on their worthiness or their guiltiness. So that's our first point. What is the mercy of God, and who is the mercy of God shown to? Whoever God decides, right? Essentially, there's two questions that we are answering from asking ourselves from the, from the text are answered. This is what the mercy of God is, and God has mercy on whoever he wills. And then this kind of sets the stage for Jonah's prayer, found in verse two through nine. Jonah prays to the Lord from the belly of of the fish. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. Some scholars might have thought it might have even been a song, a psalm of thanks. He could have sung this, it could have been a prayer or a song. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. So Jonah realizes his peril. He's been thrown overboard into the sea. He, he's calling out to God, and Jonah says, He answered me. So Jonah, running from God, disobedient, deserved death, calls out to God, and God answers. That's the mercy of God. Prayer is a privilege. Amen? It's not some sort of duty or we, we do it kind of begrudgingly sometimes. Prayer is a privilege. I think that's our second point this morning, that the Lord has mercy in hearing and answering the cries of his people. Again, God did not need to hear or even answer Jonah. I don't think. And yet he does. Not based on Jonah, but on God's mercy. Jonah prays, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol was a place where the dead resided. It was a a place, it refers to the realm of the dead. It was thought to be the place where the wicked would go after they died. Uh, Some scholars think that Jonah, this is referring to like a near-death experience. Some also would argue that Jonah died in the fish. I don't know, the text doesn't say. But Jonah is saying, from Sheol... From, this, from the depths, from a place where the wicked should go. You heard my cry, for you cast me into the deep. Now, the Bible's not contradicting itself here because we know earlier in Will's sermon, uh, the story showed that the sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. But Jonah is saying, no, God, it was you that cast me into the seas. Jonah knows that it was ultimately God in his sovereignty, in his purposes, who threw him overboard. He, he affirms the sovereignty of God. He says uh, later on, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The waves, uh, excuse me, the floods surrounded me. For all your waves and all your bellows passed over me. Jonah knew that God was ultimately responsible. He says, verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet again, I shall look upon your holy temple. This phrase, looking upon the holy temple, is, is a way of referring to um, looking upon God, remembering God, uh, turning towards him. Uh, look, praying towards the temple, the phrase could refer to a, a Jewish practice of facing Jerusalem. They would face toward the temple when they would pray. That was kind of the posture that they set themselves up in. Uh, the temple referred to God's a physical token, a, a representation, a symbol of God's holy and powerful presence. It was a symbol, a token of God's salvation, of his presence amongst his people. So is saying, I'm, I'm looking towards God. I'm turning towards you. I shall look again upon your holy temple. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The depths surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land where the bars closed upon me forever. Sheol was, was considered as the depths of the ocean. It had bars that locked people in there. This is what this is the imagery that Jonah is, is talking about. I'm, I'm going down. I'm at the foot of the mountains. I'm, the bars are closing over me. The weeds are wrapped over my head. It's over. The the bars, these gates of Sheol, are are, are near to me. Yet, you brought me up from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. We know God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. This fish saved Jonah from death. God brings Jonah up from the pit, from the realm of death, and he does this in his power and his strength. Jonah does not save himself. The mercy of God is what saves Jonah. Jonah is saved by God's mercy and his grace alone. He says in verse 7 When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This is Jonah's way of saying at the end of my life, I I looked to you, I gave attention to you. Remember it as a way of saying, giving special attention. God, you were on my mind. As I was nearing death, I was thinking about you. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. This is a way of saying that my prayer was answered by you. I think it shows the importance of prayer, the power of prayer, that prayer works. The Lord has mercy in hearing and answering the cries of his people. And when I stopped to, thought, to think about the prayer that Jonah is, is voicing here, I think the mercy of God, it, as I was reading through it, kind of just, it didn't sink in. And then I, I was listening to a sermon, I was, I was reading some commentaries, and it, it f- focused in on this point that I didn't catch until I was, was taught, instructed by it, that G- Jonah knows that God threw him into the water. So he knows, he ran from God, he knows that he is, the storm was on his account, he's running from God, he, he affirms that, you cast me into the deep. So Jonah knows that the situation that he's in is ultimately because of God. The struggle, the near-death experience, the weeds wrapping over his hand, that God is doing that. And yet the same God who is, you could say, punishing him or, or bringing him to this experience, throwing him into the water, is the same God that he prays to. I don't know if that strikes you as, as the mercy of God, but that rocked me. Jonah knows that it's, God is doing this to him and he prays to the same God who's doing that. Jonah knows that he's guilty and, and disobedient, and yet he prays to that God. Right? Like, I think like some of you might in, in here, be in here this morning and you're experiencing heartache, trouble, things are not going well for you in your life, and it's because you're disobeying God. For as all the negative things that we can say about Jonah, one thing that we can say for certain is that he knew that this evil that was came to him was on his account. Like he was worthy of the suffering that he was experiencing. He knew that was because of his disobedience. And I I, I don't think we can miss that. I don't think we can be naive here this morning, thinking uh, I'm not experiencing joy. There's a lot of trouble and and peril and heartache. I have a lot of problems and sadness. Have we ever stopped to think it it might be because of our disobedience? I haven't oftentimes. Oftentimes I I might think, well, I don't have, my family life isn't how I wanted it. My marriage life is not how I wanted it. I don't have the house that I really wanted. My, My friends, I wish they were a little better. God, it, it, my life hasn't really worked out like I wanted it to and what I will do is I will place the blame on everyone else. Everyone other than me. Now I know there are situations in which the blame should be on others. You have been sinned greatly against but I'm saying for those who have not even thought about this do we think about that? That we are actively disobeying God and wondering why things are not working out for us? No? No? Trying to tell by some of your faces, I can't really tell. (laughs) Maybe you know you're running from God. You're trying to flee his presence. And you might be sitting here thinking, I know that I'm disobedient. I have ran from God. Could God ever forgive someone like me? I put myself in my situation. Could God ever love someone like me? Jonah comforts us. Like I said, he knew the situation, this peril was on account of him, and yet he still prays to God. Jonah comforts us. He doesn't say, Well, I've sinned. I'm disobedient. I'm running from the God. Uh, I ran from his presence. God hurled me overboard. The God that I disobeyed is is displeased with me. There's no hope. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to rot. Jonah prays to praise the same God who hurled him into the sea. He doesn't say, well, God put me here, so there's no point to pray. Maybe that's you this morning. You're thinking here, okay, God is punishing me because of my situation, and I just got to deal with it. God could never love someone like me. I've, I've turned from him so many times. Jonah prayed for deliverance from the situation God put from him, and if you are running from God this morning, if you are disobedient to his call, Jonah gives you hope that you can cry out to God at any point. Amen? Amen. The Lord has mercy in hearing and answering the cries of his people. Jonah starts to list some truth about who God is and some truths about uh, what happens to those who don't worship him. It says in verse 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The word pay regard actually means uh, fear. It's a sense in which it's used, revere. It means to regard with feelings of respect and reverence. Consider hallow or exalted are to be in awe of. Will said last week that the fear of God is a way of describing that would be submissive awe. So just saying those who fear other gods forsake their hope of steadfast love. This word in Hebrew is hesed. It gets an idea of covenant, loyal, faithful love that God has for his people. And Jonah probably has the sailors in mind when he's saying this, those pagan sailors who prayed to their idols and nothing happened. In fact, it seems like the storm got worse, like their prayers weren't working because idols don't have power. Says, you forsake the love of God, there's no hope for you. Verse nine, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We see here the proper response that we've seen throughout the book of Jonah, that upon experiencing the mercy of God, upon experiencing his power and his sovereignty in your life and his salvation, you respond in sacrifice. That's the proper response. Jonah does just like the sailors do in in Jonah 1.16. They see the mercy of God, they see the power of God, they see the salvation of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God. After they watched Jonah sacrifice and the, and the storm ceased, and they sacrificed to God. It says in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is what Jonah does. He experiences the mercy of God, and he voices thanksgiving, and he says, I will sacrifice to you. Salvation belongs to you, O Lord. When we read through verses 2 through 9, we might think, wow, Jonah's getting it. I mean, he didn't get it in chapter 1. He, he ran from God. God calls him. He, he goes away. He still doesn't get it. And the end of chapter 1, like, he's putting blame, and he's like, instead of bowing down to the boat and asking for forgiveness right there, or as Will said, instead of just running and jumping over the boat, he, like, makes the sailors throw him overboard, he's kind of missing it. And then we read this prayer, and we think, oh, man, nice, Jonah. You're seeing it. You're praying to God. You're you're seeing your sin. And then we come to verse 10. And it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish. God didn't respond back to Jonah. He speaks to a fish. And the fish vomits Jonah upon the dry land. Now, I don't think it... I'm going to generalize, but it seems like, regardless of what culture or ethnicity you are, vomiting is not a good thing. <laughs> and it was interesting, as I was reading and studying on this passage, vomit, on the one hand, can just, it can simply refer to that uh, the, what Jonah was inside the great fish and comes up the stomach and gets spat out the mouth. It's, it could simply refer to that, but it could also express disgust. It could also dispre- express displeasure. And some scholars, some uh, theologians believe that this is a clear indication that God was still not happy with Jonah. Because we'll see as we work through the book uh, in a couple weeks, in chapter 4, verse 1, don't want to get ahead of myself, but after The fish vomits Jonah up from uh, the the fish, vomits Jonah onto dry land. He goes, and God comes to him again, says, Go proclaim my message. Jonah proclaims the message, and the people respond in repentance. And Jonah gets angry. Chapter 4, verse 1 it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So, in other words, Jonah doesn't want God to show mercy on, on the people. The very mercy that Jonah received, he doesn't want God to show to others. This is why people will say that God was still displeased with Jonah. It hasn't really sunk in. Even when you look at his prayer, it's not, he doesn't pray for the sailors. He doesn't even mention them. I mean, he could have, and it's just not recorded here, but the prayer, you could say, it's kind of self-centered too. Like he's just thankful for God's salvation. He's not worried about the sailors. He's not worried what happened to them. He's not thanking God that, He even used his disobedience for them to worship him. He's concerned about himself. And his mercy, his vision of God's mercy is still so narrow because he wants to experience God's mercy as long as it's upon himself and not upon them, not upon the others. He's somehow more worthy to receive God's mercy than others. This is a major truth that you can trace through the scriptures and through your Bible that if you have been shown mercy, you are to show mercy to others. If God blesses you, you are to be a blessing to others. That God's people are to be a a conduit through God's blessings, through his grace, through his mercy, through his love, through his generosity. The beginning of this thought is found in Genesis 12, where God comes to a guy named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and he says... In Genesis twelve two, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I don't think God makes Abraham's name great because Abraham was a great guy. I don't think so. We see this repeated again through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's later named Israel. He has 12 sons and these promises are repeated throughout uh, the Old Testament scriptures. You see in Exodus 19. Verses five through six, then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be known, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God's people were to be his represent, representatives, his mediatorial presence among the nations, so that the nations would see who God is through his people. God's people were to be a witness, a representative of who he was to the nations. And what, I love what Will said last uh, time in his sermon. He said that Jonah is kind of like a snapshot of the Old Testament. Jonah is kind of like even a, a picture of the, the Pharisees and the, uh, the religious leaders in the Gospels. That God calls Jonah, just like he calls his people, to be a, represent, a, a representative, a witness, to be his voice piece to the nations. And yet, they run, they fail. Again and again they fail. God has to bring them troubles and wars and famines to wake them up. He has to send a great storm to wake them up and call them back. He forgives them regardless of if they were really even repentant. Regardless of their worthiness. Knowing that they would still forsake him. He still has mercy upon them. And again and again and again you see that the people, they kind of repent. You see Jonah here, he's kind of repenting. He gets a little, he, He's making a step, but... It's, he's still missing it. He's still falling short. You see this in the Old Testament too, that pe- the people of God were thankful for God's salvation, but they still missed the mission. They still missed working together with God in partnership to be his, representation, his representatives to the nations. And as we've seen throughout the study, Jonah, just like the whole Old Testament, points ultimately to Jesus. Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob. Jesus comes as the true Israelite who obeys God perfectly. He is God's perfect represent, representative on earth. Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Jesus lives a life of perfect obedience that the Israelites were called to live. He saves his people regardless of their obedience. And while they were being disobedient, we see Jonah was guilty. He had sinned. He was worthy of death, but Jesus was guiltless. He was truly innocent. He came to rescue those who were justly condemned at the bottom of the sea. And in Jesus, when we read this prayer, we see that God, just like he did with Jonah, reaches his hand down into the depths of the sea, down into the pit, and pulls up his people and brings them to life. God sent a fish to save Jonah and God sent Jesus to save us. And if you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're a little bit skeptical about the Bible, you're skeptical of the story, I mean, could a great fish really swallow a man whole? And he lived there three days and then he spit him out. That seems a little ridiculous. Right? Can we just agree upon that? Like, we don't hear about that in the news. How much more ridiculous, how much more scandalous, how much more upside down, how much more crazy is it that God became flesh? He became a baby, a helpless human being. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death upon a cross. Have you ever just stopped to think about, like, you know, for someone who is outside of the Christian faith, how crazy, like, what we believe really is? Like, we believe that we are saved from hell, by a homeless carpenter from Nazareth who died and rose from the grave. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, I don't know about this fish thing. Let me encourage you that. The the biggest thing to be worried about is Jesus. If Jesus really said who he was and was who he was and died and rose again, Jesus himself affirms the story of Jonah. So if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything in this, is pretty much free game, right? This happened. We believe that a a homeless carpenter from Nazareth was raised from the dead. He said he was God, and God, he proved himself by raising from the dead on the third day. Just crazy, right? And Jesus even says that Jonah is a sign of this, being dead three days, being rose from, risen from the grave. See God's mercy shining forth. I think just like the sailors, as we read the story, just like Jonah, as we breathe through this prayer, if you have experienced this mercy, if you know that you are at the depths of the sea, the weeds were wrapped around your head and God in Jesus came and rescued you, brought you up from the pit, your response should be thanksgiving. Your response should be praise. Your response should be sacrifice. That's our third point this morning. The Lord has mercy in saving his people, leading to responses of praise, thanksgiving, and sacrifice. I, I wrote kind of, kind of like a lame joke down here that, uh, um, I'll just, never mind. I'll just say it. See if you guys get a laugh. For Jonah, it didn't sink in. No? Okay. When we read this story, we, we will see and we do see that for Jonah, that's, this vision of mercy was really narrow. And that although God showed this great mercy upon Jonah when he was ill deserving, undeserving, he still, it still didn't transform the way he lived. He still didn't desire God to show mercy on the nations. So this morning, I, we need to test ourselves. We need to see where our hearts are at. We look at Jonah. Have you experienced the mercy of God, and are you growing in appreciation and understanding and response to it? And uh, in your outline, I've, I've listed out a bunch of application points. There's like 10 points there. It's not a complete list, but these are just my thoughts as I was studying. What are the proper responses to experiencing God's mercy? What do those who have experienced the mercy of God become? I think it's important we test ourselves, we analyze, we see where our hearts are at this morning. Where are we? What is is the mercy of God doing in us? What are we becoming? So number one, I think that those who have been shown mercy become sorrowful over sin. We see, I think as we read this passage, we should see ourselves in Jonah and hate what we see. Not hating ourselves, but hating the sin that ensangles us, that, that traps us, that we commit against God. God's people are to hate the very thing that God hates the very thing that put us in a place of deserved judgment and wrath. Those who have received mercy are not to be willy-nilly or casual or nonchalant. We can't have an attitude, a, a posture, as if you call yourself a Christian this morning saying, yeah, God saved me, but that was pretty cool. Like it doesn't have any bearing or weight upon your life. You're not sorrowful over sin. You're not broken over your Sin. Daniel 9 9 says that to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. I know in, in my life, in the life of those that are close to me, that have, when they were saved, and when they have these moments of profound, uh, where God's mercy and grace become real to them, it is almost always accompanied by weeping. Jesus saved me when I was at a summer camp when I was 15. I I grew up in the church. I thought I knew all the right answers. I was very moralistic and legalistic. I was addicted to pornography. I was living in sin. I was angry at my mom. I was not a good, I was self-righteous. I looked down upon others. And when the gospel was proclaimed and the spirit revived my heart, I broke. I probably cried for an hour. Talk with those that are close to me that have had similar experiences where God's grace becomes real to them, the mercy becomes real to them, they break. And I don't think this should, these are to be one-time experiences. Not that you're crying every day, but are there moments in your life where you're broken over your sin and you are God's mercy becomes so much more real to you like it sinks down another level. Number two. Those who have been shown mercy become repentant. Paul says in Romans 2 Do you not know that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance? God doesn't show mercy on his people so that they continue in sin. You can't have this distorted view of grace, the distorted view of mercy that says, Mercy is just kind of like a, a free pass, a get-out-of-jail-free card that I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what commands of God I seek to obey. God's going to forgive me, so I'm going to live like I want, and I know that I'm good. The Bible actually showed that, that that's a clear indication that you haven't, been, you haven't actually received mercy. It's scary. We are to hate the sin that God saved us from, and we are to turn from it and want to forsake it. Number three, those who have been shown mercy become humble. If we believe that God has mercy on whomever he wills, that God's mercy is ultimately based upon him and his will and his sovereign, perfect purposes, that there was nothing good, nothing worthy in us that led him to show us mercy, that will lead to humility. At least it should, I think. Paul writes in, in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God's wrath, his hatred for sin was on us, was deserving of us. But it says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy... God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace we have been saved. goes on to say in verse 9, uh, in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift so that no one would boast. The moment that we begin to think that our salvation was somehow because we were worthy, because I was good enough, because I was righteous enough, is the moment that we become really prideful. Mercy shatters pride and self-centeredness because we realize it's not about us that God showed mercy. So it removes, removes the self from that and it removes the pride because we know we weren't good enough for it. Number four, those who have been shown mercy become prayerful. What does Jonah do when he receives the mercy of God? He prays. He prays. He thanks God. He, receiving the mercy of God, leads to prayer. Test your prayer life. How much do you thank God for his mercy? What do your prayers consist of? Are you entitled? Are you self-dependent? Are you prideful? It'll show up in your prayer life. Or it'll show up in your lack of prayer life. You guys with me on that? You feeling me on that? I don't often pray because I don't think I need to. I'm so deeply prideful. I'm so dependent upon myself, upon the way that God has made me. But I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a self-made man. I did this myself. I, I deserve this. I earn this. Prideful. Sinful. Test your prayer life. How much do you thank God? How much do you thank Him for His mercy? Are you dependent upon him? I think these, these points, three and four, they go kind of hand-in-hand hand, prayer and humility. Uh, Jesus, uh, there's a story that's recorded in Luke 18 where Jesus compares a tax collector and a, uh, a Pharisee, a religious leader. The religious leader says he just boasts before God, this is all I do for you. I fast twice a week. I, give, I pay a tithe on all that I receive. He's kind of standing, he's gloating. He's boasting in his religiosity. He's boasting in his goodness. And then Luke describes a, a tax collector. He says, he stood off in a distance, unwilling to even lift his eyes up to heaven. And instead he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what Jesus says, he says, I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Number five, those who have been shown mercy become content. Mercy not only humbles God peaceful, but it makes them content. If you're here this morning and you know that God's mercy has been shown to me, I don't deserve anything, I don't deserve happiness, I don't deserve this family, this spouse, this home, anything good in my life, my, my children, then everything that I have is a gift. If you want to talk about this morning, what what do you deserve as a Christian? Or what should you have deserved? Hell, separation from God. Everything outside of that is a gift. If you think about that, I don't oftentimes. It's so distracted and caught up in myself. Those who have been shown mercy are content with God, they're satisfied in God. They are not wanting more, they're not displeased. They know they deserve separation from God and everything from him is a gift. Out of that, number six, those who have been shown mercy become thankful. See, in Jonah's prayer, this very thing, he says, but with a voice of thanksgiving. It's almost like God shows mercy. I I read this in a sermon that God answers us in distress in order to win undivided, undivided loyalty and to fill us with thanksgiving for his mercy. So I think we could say that the degree to which uh, you are broken over your sin, the degree to which you are repentant, the degree to which you are prayerful, the degree to which we are humble is the degree to which you have understand or understood or experienced the mercy of God. Number seven, those who have been shown mercy become glad in God. Not only satisfied, not only filled over with thanksgiving, but with joy, with gladness, happy in God, enjoying his merciful gifts, receiving them in gladness. God's mercy makes us joyful in God, glad in God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And this word blessed means characterized by happiness or divine favor. In other words you're saying you receive mercy happiness comes forth happy joyful blessed are the the merciful they've received mercy how is your joy how is your gladness what makes you happy Right, what makes you happy? Think, think about it right now. What makes you happy? What excites you? Good, good juicy piece of steak? <laughs> Leaving work early? I don't think so are bad things. What ultimately makes you happy? Your kids? Timothy Keller says that um, when you're identifying in your life the one thing that you couldn't live without, that is your functional God. You're saying, I would would be devastated if this happened. I would be ruined. If you put your happiness in things outside of God, they will always be conditional. God is the only one who gives happiness fully and completely. God's given us this desire to want happiness. All men want happiness, don't we? Unless our minds are in a bad place or we're warped, I think that all people desire happiness. We're looking for happiness? Are we happy in God? And what are we showing to those around us? When, when a Seahawk win gives us more joy than gathering with this church. Um, number eight, those who have been shown mercy become sacrifices seems like it's a verse that has come up a lot as as we studied through Jonah. But Paul writes in in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So by the mercy of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. In other words, responding and being shown God's mercy leads to you being a sacrifice. Because of God's mercy, Christians are... Not only broken over sin, they're not in hatred for sin. They're not only repentant. They're not only humble, prayerful, content, thankful, joyful, out of response to God's mercy, but because of God's mercy, they give themselves entirely to God and His purposes. Number nine: those who have been shown mercy become witnesses to the riches of the glory of God. Now, this is a verse that's kind of a bombshell. I, I I can't unpack it all. If you want to talk about it more this week, I'd love to talk with you about it. Romans nine verses twenty two through twenty three. Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that's a bombshell. That that's that's a lot to, to talk about right there. But what I wanted to focus on is verse 23 in the context, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If you are a Christian this morning, you are a vessel of mercy that God has glorified through. His mercy shown on your life glorifies him. Just the fact that he's shown you mercy and has mercy upon you, God is glorified through that. man, I just I'm just blown away by God's mercy as I'm studying this passage. God is making known the riches of his glory through his mercy being shown upon you. This should never lead to a pride, a a bigotry, a smug indifference to the mercy of God or to those who don't have it, right? This is where it needs to sink a little deeper than it does with Jonah. If God has shown us mercy, it must go forth out of us. We can't be indifferent to those around us who are perishing, As we see in the last point, number 10, those who have been shown mercy become merciful. Jesus says many times, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Jesus says, for the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, like we said earlier, the measure to which you extend mercy is the degree to which you will receive it. And I wanted to end with this parable that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18. It's a a parable. It's a story of of a king and a a servant settling debts. If you want to read there with me, you can open to Matthew 18. Starting in verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many a seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven. Then he tells his parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all they had in payment to be made. The amount that is given here is, is one that he could not pay back in his lifetime. That's that's what he's talking about here. It says, verse 26, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, another way of describing mercy, for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, way less of an amount, Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the servant fell down and pleaded with him, have mercy, have patience with me and I will pay you. But verse 30, he refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 31, when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mercy produces mercy. Mercy receives mercy. We as Christians should become, will become merciful as we grow and appreciate and understand the mercy of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, learn from Jonah, see his mistake, see his, his blatant miss. Receive such mercy from God and not showing it to others. And know that God has called you Be a conduit. He has blessed you to be a blessing. He has shown mercy upon you so that you show mercy upon others. Everything good in your life, He has given you to show God's goodness to others in your life. Everything that He has blessed you with in your life, He has given you to bless others through. When we think about this, we we should think about us being. You say, "Well, through streets, not cul-de-sacs. Things don't end with us; they're supposed to go through us." Where are we at this morning? And and this is why, at at the Mountain Church, we talk about sin, and we talk about it a lot. And sometimes I I fear and I worry that that some of the messages can come across just like we're we're beating you down because we talk about sin. But why we do this is so that we see the mercy of God. If you don't realize or understand the peril that you're in, then God's mercy is not really going to be a big deal in your life because you're not really that bad, therefore you don't really need it. Amen? I pray now as we respond into a time of communion that we would think about these things. Think about the mercy that God has shown you in your life, that he's given you things that you do not deserve. And how are we responding to that? God, I I deserve this. I worked hard for this. I was owed this. Are we giving it back to him, giving it to others? Let's pray. while we were running from you, while we were fleeing your presence, while we were preferring and desiring other things over you, you pursued us. You have sent storms. You have, uh, in your grace, you have shown us kindness. Father, for those in this room that you have shown mercy to and they have responded in faith and repentance. They are yours. Would you help us? Would you cause this mercy to sink deeper into our hearts that we would become a a more humble people, a more joyful people, a more satisfied people, a more content people, a more outward people, a more other-oriented people? Would you strip pride and self-centeredness and arrogance from our hearts? Would you strip entitlement from our hearts? Would you strip a a religious uh, self-righteousness from our hearts? That everything that we have in our life is because we earned it and you owe us, God? God, you owe us nothing and yes, you have given us everything. You sent the most precious thing that you had, your son, to die on the cross on our behalf while we were sinning against you. And Father, for all the times in our life, for all the times um, this past hour, for all the times this, the next day, the next week in which we will turn from you, we will prefer other things. We will look for happiness in and, and created things instead of the creator. We will long for intimacy with other things more than intimacy with you. We will rely upon ourselves and others more than we rely upon you. Would your mercy, would you show us your mercy in those moments that we might respond in, in thanks and praise and worship and sacrifice? Father, I pray in this room that your spirit would, would call those who are not yet believers, those who have not yet placed their faith in you, that through the word preached this morning, through the songs that we sing, that your gospel might be known, made known to them, that it might become clear to them, that they would realize the peril that they are in, that they might even see all of God's mercy leading up to this point in their life, all the ways that he has been working in and being gracious to him or her and they would respond and appreciate your hand and your presence and your promises. Father, we love you, we thank you, we ask that this time now would we'll be pleasing to you as we respond hopefully in, in great thanksgiving and praise for you that we would seek this week to go out and be those living sacrifices that we would seek to give all of who we are, our souls, our minds, our thoughts, our affections, our, our actions, everything that we are to you for your purposes and, and your will and working in this world. Father, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name I pray, amen.